Everybody hear me okay? I'm just going to do a little tweaking. That's right. I was a, a roadie in a past life. Uh, no, I really wasn't. I just, but I'm an actor. <laughs> I can act like one. Good evening, everybody. My name is Jared D. I usually give my first, my full name. My name is Jared D. And I'm a recovered alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober, to be present, to be a part of, uh, and to be invited through the spirit of the group and through the committee. And I want to say thank you all very much for having me. Um, it's certainly an honor and a privilege to get to go anywhere uh, to uh, speak for Alcoholics Anonymous or speak in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I certainly live a life of invitation, and we will talk about that a little bit later. But uh, if some of you have shared the same experience that I have, there were plenty of times when I wasn't invited to go places. <laughs> plenty of times where people would call ahead and say, Jared's not coming, is he? <laughs> so, as I said, I introduced myself as a recovered alcoholic because it's, it is the truth. That is my experience. I don't suffer from some sort of false humility that I'm going to be always recovering, sick and suffering, struggling one silly day at a time. That is not my experience. I've taken 12 steps. I've had a spiritual awakening as the result of those steps, and I no longer think about drinking. Moreover, I no longer think about not drinking. Now, that's kind of a cool deal. Because think about it. In, in the grip of the grapes, as some people would phrase it, right? Untreated, I wake up in the morning, and I'm thinking of two things. How can I get it? How can I stay away from it? Either way, it owns me. But now I've been placed in a position of neutrality directly related to just doing a few simple things in this program, right? A few precise instructions, and more importantly, through the power of God. Because that's exactly why we're here. That's exactly why any of us are here. I'm sure some of my, uh, my forebears or other speakers that I'm sure you've probably heard even all over the world, God is the reason why we're here. Right? This should be a pep rally for the Spirit. Don't want to call it God? Call it the power. Right? In my group, whenever we close, we don't, say, uh, you know, we don't say stay. We don't say work the steps. We don't say keep coming back. We say feel the power. Because that's exactly what it is. Feel the power. I'll explain a little bit of that later on. So, uh, fortunately... Oh, good. Water. I was separated from alcohol September the 5th, 2015. For that, I'm very, very grateful. And uh, thank you. I have, uh, have an 11-year-old and a 2-year-old at home, and they're pretty dang grateful, too, that Daddy's around. Right? My wife, the same. Many other people in my life are actually pretty grateful that I am now you know, a present, effective member of society, because it wasn't always. Um, as Jenny already read in uh, How It Works, I get the opportunity to... Uh, see, I remembered your name. I remember names, right? Cause someone told me there's a test, so I gotta, I'm trying to do my best. Um, hopefully it's multiple choice. Anyway, um, as it says in how it works, we, I get the opportunity to be here to tell my story. I'm not going to tell you what it was like and what happened and what it's like now. We all know what it's like, right? It's crappy. Right? I get to tell what I was like, living life on self-will, what happened, deflation at depth, the spiritual experience, and 
what's happening now, right? Living in the sunlight of the Spirit. And uh, if I have anything to do with it, I promise you, you will not get an hour-long drunkalogue because I ain't all about that, right? I'd rather talk more about like what's happening now living in the sunlight of the Spirit. How is God working in my life? What's my relationship with God? What's my relationship with the other people? Because God's working through them and through me to connect. I'd rather talk about that cool stuff. We all know how bad it was. But, for the sake of qualifying myself, I will get into a little bit of that stuff. So, um, my home group is the Make a Difference group in Dallas, Texas. um, And uh, formerly the primary purpose group. I'll just kind of give you a little information about how this ended up happening. Um, better yet, I'll save that for the end. That's a cliffhanger. Right? So that means you've got to stay. <laughs> Everybody's got to stay. I got you. See how that worked? Um, I grew up in Midland, Texas. Right? Way west Texas. Has anybody ever, ever heard of it? Anybody ever been there? I'm sorry. <laughs> really, really sorry. There's not much to do there. Uh, but just get into trouble. Drink, get into trouble. You know what I mean? Um, but growing up, um, I didn't, you know, didn't have any trauma or anything like that. You know what I mean? I wasn't abused. I had a, had a great, you know, childhood. Got all the things that I needed. I had shoes on my feet, clothes on my back. I played soccer. Uh, I was in theater all my life. And, um, you know, I, I got all the things that I needed. Right? Um, and uh, as many of us do, we always have, uh, you know, I had someone in my life who I would uh, call a potential alcoholic. And as growing up, I always said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to be like that person, right? Or uh, I'm going to do my, my, my darndest to just, you know, not, not be like that, you know what I mean? And sure enough, I end up being like ten times as bad, you know? Um, and that's where, you know, part of the story ends up coming into play. Um, so I had mentioned, uh, you know, growing up playing sports and all of that fun stuff. Um, I was a child actor and, um, you know, doing whether it's theater or commercials or anything like that. But growing up in West Texas, all of that stuff isn't, you know, you know present out in the middle of the desert like it would be in a bigger city, you know. So I got a chance to go cool places at a very, very young age and kind of grew up at a pretty young age. Got a chance to live in New York by myself, you know, for a pretty long time. And it was through this process of acting that um, this level of confidence within me started to kind of manifest itself, you know. And a lot of times people will come up when they're telling their story and, and say, you know, I felt less than or I felt this or, you know what I mean, I just didn't really feel like I fit in. I'm like the, the opposite side of the spectrum. I had overconfidence, right? I was, I was cocky for sure, you know, and uh, arrogance, all of these things. These, you looked it up in the dictionary at that time, that's me, you know, and whatever other thesaurus, you know what I mean, synonyms, all of that was there. And um, so it kind of like what Bill uh, mentions in his story, I began to forge the weapon that would later on kind of return and, and get me, and that was building pride and ego and arrogance, right? Thinking that I was better than, uh, and that I deserved more, and that I was entitled, and all these kind of things, you know? Um, and uh, it wasn't until probably um, maybe like junior high, high school, or something like that, I ended up finding liquor. And... Um, 
it wasn't like one of those magical things where I had arrived at that time. It was like, you know, I still had that person in my life who I said I wasn't going to be like. So um, I found some uh, non-conference approved dry goods that I think are legal in your state. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, that was just a band-aid on an open wound, right? And so those things were pretty prevalent in my life and, and it wasn't until later on that this really started to kind of manifest itself. And that was really more like, you know, high school uh, and in college. Because prior to that time, I didn't really have any, I didn't have consequences. But what we all have to understand is that that second half of step one, the unmanageability, that's not my outside circumstances. That's not going to jail or getting the kids taken away or, you know, not being able to hold down the job. That is not unmanageability. Unmanageability is... I cannot manage the decision to stay away from alcohol to save my own life. That is unmanageability. Right? And uh, that was something that would take a long time for me to be able to come to grips with. So um, my first little nip of the ringer was uh, I was a junior in high school and the girl that I was dating said, hey, we're going to go hang out with some seniors and you know what, I think they got some, uh, they got some booze and we're going to end up you know, having a great time. We're going to go to the football game a little bit later. So in Midland, football is a big deal. You've probably seen Friday Night Lights or heard about it, whatever. That's it. It's exactly it. Um, and so we end up, um, you know, they, they start throwing some stuff on the table. You know, there's beer or whatever. And then there's everybody's favorite, Boone's Farm, <laughs> Strawberry Hill, right? A great never touch the stuff. All right, we'll put it that way. Because uh, that always confused me in the book whenever it said switching from, you know, to natural wines or whatever. But it's like, what's, the, what's an unnatural wine? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know. That's about the time when stuff like Zima and Jolly Ranchers were popular. Um, so anyway, yeah, if you laugh, you know what exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so... You know, we, I'm, I'm trying to hang with the, with the older class, upperclassmen, that kind of thing, and so I'm just pounding it. I'm pounding it. We go to the, uh, to the football game, and my date is falling down the bleachers in front of the police officers, and me trying to be the, the chivalrous West Texan that I am, you know, I'm helping her, and I'm trying to escort her, you know, to get out of there or whatever, and the cops associate me with her. So we get put into in-school suspension for like 92 days. Right? 92 days. So at this time, the, the wonderful city of Midland decided to uh, create a zero-tolerance policy and made an example out of me and her. Straight-A student, all that stuff up until that point, and I get in-school suspension, which I deemed kind of like Alcatraz. Um, for, for an extroverted person like me, who I need like interaction, and I need to talk to people, and I need to make you laugh, and that kind of stuff, it was like, it was the pits. I even like made notches on the side of my little cubicle, and how many... How many days of hard labor I had been there, you know? Um, and uh, so that was kind of a rough deal. It, it, it ruined my chances of playing soccer in college. Uh, and so then I fell back on theater, uh, which is something that I had always been doing, whether it's for, you know, film or TV, but also, you know, on stage as well. And uh, I decided to lean more on that, and I ended up going to college. Uh, the University of North Texas, which is in uh, a little bit north of Dallas, like 30, 40 minutes, something like that. And uh, 
So it was there that I ended up um, meeting my wife, and while we started dating, um, I you know, thought that I would pay for friends by joining a fraternity. I ended up doing that, and we had a, a, an awesome costume party that night. And like any, any good potential alcoholic, I waited to the last minute to get, my, uh, to get my costume, right? It's like day of, and it's like, oh, crap, I've got to go get a costume. So I go to like a local costume shop, and I'm thumbing through. Everything's picked over. It's like, oh, the Monopoly guy? No, I don't think so. And I keep going through, and then I found it. There it is. Costume above costumes, a one-piece Spider-Man leotard. <laughs> that was unfortunately three sizes too small. Could have been a youth size, I don't know. I don't really remember. Um, but I had the clever idea to pack a change of clothes so maybe I could go as Peter Parker, you know, a little bit later on. <laughs> to getting on to the story, right? Um, uh, this is the second nip of the, nip of the ringer that I felt... Uh, went to the party that night. Everybody was laughing, you know what I mean? Because this is what I fueled on. It's like, if you're laughing at me or if I get your attention, oh, boy, I just soak it in. I grow stronger, you know? <laughs> and uh, it's like, the, if you've seen the Highlander, right? The quickening. Yeah, yeah when another it's exactly like that. It's like I'm just growing stronger. And uh, because I have your attention, all eyes are on me. And I'm the center of attention. And uh, so... I get done with that party, I hop in the car, I'm getting ready to leave to go to work that night, and I hear a knock on the door, and I look out the window, and it's somebody that I don't know, and I roll the window down, and it's a bike cop. So I got arrested by a bike cop that night, and I went to jail as Spider-Man. Yeah, I didn't think Spider-Man ever got arrested. But uh, I did. And so, you know, I had an all-time low when I'm sitting there getting my fingerprints done and all that kind of stuff, and I can hear the dudes in the drunk tank. You know, they're banging on the windows like, Mira, say Spider-Man! He's going to come save us! Help us, Spider-Man! You know. And I'm, you know, and I'm sitting there... Uh, you know. So anyway... Bailed out the next day, everything was fine. Drinking had not be, uh, assumed the serious proportions that it would a little bit later on. Um, fast forward several years, uh, I had met my wife in college, we got married, everything's rocking and rolling, and I came to a point in time where these, these non-conference approved drag goods that we talked about are not doing it at all. You know, Up until then, I would just really kind of drink on occasion. You know, or I'd drink socially or whatever it might be. I'd never be sending it over the edge, you know what I mean? Not too many times. But then came a point in time, um, by this time I'm, I'm no longer acting anymore. I am actually working as the first assistant director in the film business making television commercials, right? So if anybody's familiar with that position or with the film business, that is the person who is basically kind of, well, in big book terms, I was joking with Ross, I run the show, right? <laughs> I got to run the show. I got to. I have to organize things like logistics. I got to make a plan of the schedule. I have to execute that schedule and whatever the director's vision is on the day, whenever we're shooting, right? So I'm the voice on set. I, you know, I'm the center of attention. Wow, interesting. And um, at doing freelance work, I'm not working all the time, and so I have a lot of time when I'm not working to get trapped in my head, kind of like what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, 
And so when I'm trapped in my head, you know, I start to feel, you know, oh, well, why aren't people hiring me? Or we're getting into a whole lot of fear, insecurity, you know what I mean? All of these kind of things that for someone like me is, spells poison, right? So, you know, I'll just pick up a few drinks. I might have a Chardonnay or two, what of it? But it starts to increase. Then it starts to turn into day drinking, you know what I mean? It starts to turn into daily drinking, right? And my lovely wife notices, she's like, I mean, you seem to be kind of drinking a lot. Do you, you think maybe you can just like wait until 5 o'clock when I get off to, to start drinking? And I'm like, well, honey, I love you so much. Absolutely, I will try that. <laughs> I absolutely will. And that lasted maybe two days, a couple of days. And then she said something along the lines of, you know what, you're, you're kind of like, getting to where you're drinking like a bottle a day or something like that. Can you just like tone it down until the weekends? And then maybe we can do something. And I'm like, honey, I love you so much. I am absolutely going to try that. And that lasted a couple of days. Right? And so, you know, like it talks about again in, in Bill's story, this all went off like a ski jump in a very, very short amount of time. And I mean a very short amount of time it's progressing pretty dang quickly. Uh, now, because she's already voiced her concerns about some of it, what do I resort to? I'm resorting to hiding it. I got any hiders in here? Yes! Perfectly legal substance, and I'm hiding it. Right? Problem is, though, is that I'm hiding it in a blackout. I'm, <laughs> I'm so good at hiding it, Right? That I hide it from myself. <laughs> and, you know, so my day consists of coming to, right, tearing the house up, ripping it up to find whatever, wherever I hit it, you know, having maybe some moment of clarity that it was like, it's in the gutter. That's where I put it. Because I'm so tall, I could just reach into the gutter of the house <laughs> and just pour it out. It's like, there it is. But then now I drink all of that, and now I've got to hustle up money to be able to, you know, find more. And so by this time, things are progressing, you know, pretty dang quickly. And um, again, my wife is voicing her concerns. And, you know, it, it appears to be problematic. You know what I mean? Just externally, it appears to be problematic. And, you know, I end up going to maybe see therapists and stuff like that. And they're trying to psychoanalyze me and ask me, you know, well, what happened to you as a kid and stuff like that? And it's nothing happened. As a matter of fact, absolutely nothing happened. And it was to find out later that alcoholism itself is not causal. There's nothing out there that caused me to be the way that I am. Now, I'm not negating any of the things that, it, that some of us may have gone through, whether it's as children or teenagers or adults or something like that. Some of these things can go unnamed for the sake of the talk, right? These are bad things. I don't wish them on anybody. But I have to understand, it didn't make me what I am. It may exacerbate the problem greatly. I may have drink over these kind of things, but it didn't cause me to be an alcoholic. And so, you know, we're trying to find the inner workings of my mind and stuff like that, and I kind of figure, you know what, maybe now is a great time to, to try to go to AA, right? And the only thing that I knew about AA is what I saw on TV, you know? Because that's pretty much what anybody out there in the populace knows what AA is, you know? Hi, uh, my name's Ted, and I'm just... Glad to be here today. My weed eater didn't start this morning, so I'm just kind of having some trouble. And so I, 
I, I looked it up on my phone and I found the closest meeting, which was like a mile away. It's a stone's throw from the house, right? And I thought that every meeting was the same. I knew, didn't know any better. So I show up to AA and these people um, were really nice. Uh, the coffee was, was warm, you know what I mean? The smiles were big. The hugs were awesome. They welcomed me in and they said, hey, you know, Jared's brand new. Let's go around the room and tell him how we got here. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, this is cool. And I'd, you know, I'd sit down in the chair and we'd start around here and this person starts talking about some of their consequences. We make it around to the middle of the room and this dude's got like, you know, a, a couple of DWIs and stuff. And I'm like, man, well, I haven't really got this yet. You know, we make it around over here and this dude's got like, you know, a murder case and, and 13 DWIs. And I'm like, golly, you know, I must not be an alcoholic. Because... I haven't experienced any of these things, and I'm only trying to relate by what I'm hearing. Right? This is why we have to be careful about what we talk about in our meetings. Right? Because I don't need to relate to the external circumstances. The consequences and the results of my drinking are not prerequisites to being an alcoholic. They are not required. Right? Only two things are. We'll get to that point here in a little bit. So suffice to say, um, you know, I... I got a sponsor, and I'm kind of floundering. But at no point in time did anybody really pull me aside and tell me, Jared, this is, this is what you're suffering from. This is what you might be suffering from. No one sat me down and qualified me, right? And nobody said, this is the solution. But I also have to play devil's advocate in that regard because if someone did, I wasn't willing to hear it at that time because I still had a plan, right? I still had a game plan, you know? I had a lot, a lot more of my plans to run through before any of this looked remotely good, you know. Even in my first meeting, I sat and worked them all off the, off the wall. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I can do that. You know. Um, but now is the point where my drinking started to assume more, more serious proportions. Um, now it's... Uh, I'm completely blacklisted from the film business in Dallas because... I'm showing up to set drunk. Um, I'm trying to run set drunk. Still drinking on set sometimes, you know, trying to hide it, whether it's in water bottles or whatever, thinking that I'm hip, slick, and cool, but it's like, people know, dude. You know what I mean? Uh, and so nobody wants to hire me anymore. I'm not making any money. And now I'm spending up our money, my wife and I's money, uh, that we're not making. You know what I mean? And she didn't know how to treat me. She didn't know how to, how to deal with me. So, you know, she did what probably most any of our loved ones would do. She took my, she took my truck keys. She took my, uh, my credit cards or she took my debit cards and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And um, this is now the time when I started hitting, you know, alcohol. As the book says, to them the alcoholic life seems the only normal one, right? It becomes normal for me to lie, to manipulate, becomes normal for me to hurt the ones that I love, though that's not like ever my, my intention, right? Um, it, the bar began to uh, be set lower and lower and lower, and I started to resort to stealing. Didn't matter. Something I told myself I would never do. Now, here's the thing, guys. Uh, as a West Texas boy, my mama raised me right. I know how to say yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir, hold the door open for women, you know, or anybody. It doesn't really matter, right? Not only that, I was an Eagle Scout. 
I know what it means to be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. Right? But the needed power was not there. You know, I could have, as the book says, moral and philosophical convictions galore, but none of these things were sufficient enough to be able to keep me away from the drink. You know, it became pretty apparent that once I started, it was wheels off. You know, I'm, I'm drinking more than just to excess, right? I'm drinking for oblivion. Um, and about this time, uh, my daughter was born. It was around 2012. And, you know, for a lot of people you know, this is a happy and joyous occasion, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there, you know, at least my plan in, in a, a sober interval, you know what I mean? I was like a 28-day wonder. Uh, you get me close to 28 days, people are like, watch out because I'm about to explode. They just know it. It's pretty predictable. Um, and so this is around the time when my, when my daughter was born and instead of being there to, you know, help my wife with the breathing or you know, be, just be a part of, right? I'm going back and forth to the parking garage, you know, popping Turkey 101 or whatever it might have been at the time. You know what I mean? And the only thing that I remember that night was um, yelling at the nurses, cussing at the doctor, and cutting the umbilical cord. That's it, you know? I was not there. I was not present, you know, at least 100% for my daughter being born. I distinctly remember them handing me to her and I held her for you know, a certain period of time and then I handed her off to my father-in-law. Not because I didn't want her, but because the physical piece was on me. I needed to get back downstairs and I needed to get right. You know what I mean? Um, uh, by this time, you know, I've already probably gone to a couple of different treatment centers. Ended up going to probably six total. Um, and uh, that doesn't count detoxes, that doesn't count uh, ER visits, you know what I mean? Because each time I'm attempting to quit, I was, a, I was a good quitter. Any of us can quit, right? It's staying quit, that's the hard part, right? Every time I would quit, I didn't have any money. So now I'm detoxing myself at home, which, disclaimer, don't do that, right? It's very, very dangerous, extremely, extremely dangerous, okay? And um, I got to the point where I was seizing out all the time, you know. I seized out in front of my daughter, seized out in front of my wife, you know what I mean? All these kind of things were happening. And also going through DTs, like some serious DTs. There were times when I just didn't even know where I was or what I was saying or what, you know, how I was affecting other people. It was just happening and it was nuts. Um... And uh, going to my fifth treatment center, I met a couple of guys, uh, some twins who many of you probably may know. I think they've been here before. A um, couple of Texas boys. One of them's got an eye patch. And these gentlemen uh, effectively kind of saved my life. They were working at a specific treatment center that I went to, and they told me, they said, hey, you know what, whenever you, whenever you get out of here, you need to go get hooked up with the primary purpose group in Dallas. I was like, okay, fine. So I got out and I did get hooked up with those guys. And it was a different kind of meeting. You know, the lights were on. There was like, I had, you had, had to run through a hundred people greeting you on the way to the meeting. It's like, you know, they should have thrown out tires or something like that. You've got to run through to be able to make it through everybody greeting you. 
And they were studying the book. They were in the book. I heard things that I'd never even heard before, you know, because by this time I had been a meeting maker because somebody told me meeting makers make it. And I was like, like any good alcoholic, I'm gonna, I'm, I did 270 in 90. But, but up until this point, I was drinking before the meeting. I was drinking after the meeting. Some of the groups that I would go to offered chips at the end now because good old J-Rod is drinking during the meeting. You know what I mean? And uh, don't ask me how it happened. Um, suffice to say, I was a basket case. It was an extreme example of self-war run riot. I was a tornado roaring through the lives of anybody and everybody who I touched. And that's, it was then that I got hooked up uh, with my sponsor. We'll call him JK. And um, I floundered in and out and in and out, you know, doing, you know, going up to, like, say, step three, and then I'm going out. And then maybe we might get to a four-step, and then I go out. You know what I mean? I, there's been a time he made it up to, to making some amends, doing you know, some sort of a half-ass uh, um, inventory and still going out. And all the while, it never was an issue with any of those steps. And that's what we have to understand is that you know, step one is the one, as it says on page 30, we learn how to be fully conceived to our innermost selves. Right? It's not an intellectual process. This book... This piece of literature is not aimed at the thinking mind. It's not for this. It's for this. Right? Because that's also where the solution lies. Right? And I can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. And up until this point, all these different treatment centers and stuff like that that I'm going to, you know what I mean, whether it's sobriety by the sea, you know what I mean, or you know, you're out there parting the wild horse's mane on, you know, doing Tai Chi or whatever. You know, I mean, it's like, what does that have to do with sobriety? What does that have to do with God? Nothing. You know? All I'm doing is, getting, is gaining self-knowledge, right? And as we know, self-knowledge avails me nothing. You know? And uh, I met this gentleman, and uh, he never gave up on me. And that was a really cool thing. And that's, to this day, that's something that I hold true with any of the men that I get an opportunity to take through the work is that I don't give up on anybody. I don't turn my back on anybody. I don't fire people, you know. If they decide that they don't want to do the work, they effectively fire me. And that's up to them. You know what I mean? Um, And so getting to exactly what happened. Um, By this time, things are are completely, you know, nuts. I'm, I'm stealing from all of these different kinds of stores and stuff like that. It was absolutely nothing for me to steal with my eight-month-old daughter on my hip. Just walk into Walmart, walk into wherever, and just, you know, pop stuff in a bag and walk out. Not trying to get anybody any ideas, but that's I'm just letting you know where I was. Um, and uh, I distinctly remember a time that our local grocery store uh, was more of kind of a mom-and-pop place. I, w- I went in there and stole from them, and they actually caught me doing it. And the manager who knew me, she knew my family, she knows us, knows us all by name, she comes up to me with tears in her eyes, and she says, I don't, I don't know what is going on with you, but I don't want, I don't want you to ever come back. And, um, you know, I uh, got lucky, and my brother-in-law, sorry, not my brother-in-law, my cousin, took pity on me, let me come work at a soccer shop, 
selling soccer clothes and shoes and stuff like that for a little bit. And I, you know, put together like maybe a month and a half worth of sobriety. And, you know, it was inevitable that the wheels were about to fall off. You know what I mean? Because that's just my M.O., you know. What I do best is pass out in a Walmart parking lot, get a half a tan on half of my body, right, and, and reemerge smelling like Fruit Punch Four Locos and Turkey 101. You know what I mean? That's what I did, right? Um, and um, this was September... Uh, no, it's actually... So this is like the last week in August. My mom was in town uh, because my brother lives in Dallas as well, and she said, hey, we're going to go out to eat. Do you want to come and meet us after you get off of work? I was like, oh, yeah, sure, of course. Uh, I just need to go home, and I need to let the dog out because my wife and my daughter were not in town at that time. They were gone for probably about a week's time. And my job, my plan was to just literally go let the dog out and uh, go meet him for dinner. I came to from a 14-day blackout, um, had not put an ounce of food in my body, which was pretty much par for the course these days, hadn't showered, um, minimal water, like I said, living off of you know, whiskey or whatever I could find. You know what I mean? If it had booze in it, great, I'm going to drink it. Um, and then came September the 5th of 2015, which is a day that I hit a level of desperation that since then has not been matched. Uh, I was presented with basically two options, like the book says. There's not a door number three. It's go on to the bitter end, right? Or pick up a simple kit of spiritual tools. I knew what the book said. I had already had a head full of AA by this time, which is a deadly combination for someone who's still drinking, still untreated, right? And it was, it was really boiled down to two things. Die, because I literally almost died three times up to this point, like a physical death. Die or get sober now. Right? Nothing else. And so I called my sponsor, and I was 100% desperate. Right? Oftentimes you, you'll read in the book where it says, you know, honesty and willingness, these are indispensable. But you know what? What is the catalyst for honesty and willingness? Desperation. Right? At what point in time am I, does any of this look remotely cool? Right? At what point in time am I willing to do things that I don't want to do when I'm 100% desperate? Right? When I'm 100% desperate. This is like kissing a baby's butt compared to going out there and, you know, in the streets, you know what I mean? Probably could have picked a better metaphor, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean. Uh, so I called up my sponsor, and I'm like, "JK, dude, I'm ready. I'm I'm really ready to do this." Um, actually, I should be honest. I was more like, "JK." <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to do this. You know. And so when we got past that part, he was like, all right, big boy, you said that before. Let's see what your feet are doing. Right? That was a Sunday. He said, you meet me at the group on Tuesday. I met him at the group on Tuesday. We went over some step one stuff. Right? It became pretty clear that step one did not tell me that you can't drink. Step one is saying, you will drink. 
Left to my own devices, I will do what I always do, and that's drink. Birds fly, fish swim, Jared drinks. I'm an alcoholic. Um, And then he asked me probably the most simplistic step two question that I still use to this day. He said, do you believe that there's a power in my life that's keeping me sober today? And I said, yes, sir, absolutely. And he said, do you hope that that power can work for you? I knew his story. I knew he drank as much booze or more booze than I ever dreamed of. He gets to go home to his wife and kid. I'm still shaking out whiskey. And it's like, yes, I hope that that works for me. Because I had arrived at a a position of no choice. I was beaten. I was defeated. And I was 100% desperate. I have no choice but to go through this because I've exhausted all of my other plans. There better be a God out there. There better be something. Because whatever I'm doing ain't working. We hit our knees. We did a third step prayer. We stood up. We hugged it out. He said, here's your instructions for four. You have a week to do it or else. And or else meant go away. Don't waste my time. Uh, Because I had been wasting his time for like two and a half years up to this point. You know what I mean? And so, um, long story short, on day nine of sobriety, I had already finished my uh, had already finished my inventory. Met him at his house like 7 a.m. something like that. We did a fifth step. Bless you. Went home. Uh, spent my hour of quiet time to culminate five. Uh, did six and seven. And uh, by lunchtime, I had made an eight-step list. Um, I, I okayed some amends with him. Went out and made some amends after lunch, and uh, had. On the way home from one of those amends, one of my buddies called me and said, Hey, dude, we're going to go to Homeward Bound tonight to go carry the message to the local treatment center. Do you want to come with us? I was like, Yeah, absolutely. Wouldn't miss it for the world. So I show up to Homeward Bound that night thinking that, you know what I mean, I don't, I don't even know what I'm going to say. You know what I mean? And I can guarantee you I didn't sound like Moses, you know what I mean, for the whatever, you know, so many minutes that I was there. And I didn't even think that I had anything to share, but I actually did. I had a lot to share because I had a lot of experience in that short amount of time in one day. Right? We're talking of at least up to this point, five through nine in one day. Right? Obviously, nine is a continuing process. But once I reach nine and I begin making these amends, that puts me in 10, 11, and 12 for the rest of my life. And what was I doing there talking to those guys? I was sharing my experience of what had happened to me that day. And some of these dudes thought it you know, unfathomable. Oh, you can't do that. You gotta do a step a month. <laughs> right. So, um, well, wait, isn't don't you have to do ninety meetings in ninety days first? Either way, I had a lot to share with those guys. And though it may sound a little cliche, when I'm driving home that day, uh, it's like my truck wheels never touch the ground. I have one thought and one thought only: I don't ever have to pick up another drink again. And since then, that has been true. I don't think about drinking. I am not tempted. If so, I recoil as from a hot flame. Right? I can react sanely and normally. I've been placed in a position of neutrality. Recovered. Right? And that's how I remain as long as I continue to keep in fit spiritual condition. And so what does that look like? That means continuing to correct the damage that I've done in the past. To... Um, to continue to make amends. Up until this point, I have made all but one amends that I am consciously aware of. 
And that's because I have, I, I have no ability to see this, this person. I cannot find them. Right? Um, and I was able to go back to that grocery store uh, manager. You know, I showed up and she remembered me. She knew exactly who I was. <laughs> but through the power of God and some nice mathematical gymnastics, I was able to calculate you know, the period of time to which I used that specific store to steal from, what I was stealing, how much I was stealing, how many times I would go a day, do math, 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 right? And I, was, I presented her with a sum of money, and I said, look, this, I've kind of calculated what I've got. I regret treating you the way that I've treated. You treated my family like, you know, they were royalty coming into the store, but I treated you like garbage. I robbed you out of having a good, you know, a good shopper, being a good shopper, whatever I might have said at the time. And here's the money that I owe you from stealing from your store. Is there anything else that I can do to make that right between us? And she just started bawling. She said, honey, a lot of times people admit that they're wrong, but they never want to try to make it right. She said, you can come back and shop in my store anytime. And since then, I've had, I mean, beyond miraculous, you know, amends stories, I could just go on and on two days talking about just that. Um, but now I'd like to get into exactly what is happening right now. And, you know, I had mentioned the group that uh, I was formerly at the primary purpose group, and then during COVID, which did a number on all of us, right, um, our meeting shut down, and we were in quarantine. But a lot of us still wanted to be able to meet. So we formed the Gorilla Pop-Up AA meeting, right, which is like grab a lawn chair, grab your tumbler of iced tea or whatever it might be and meet out in the park and we're going to study the book. You know what I mean? So we got a little powwow, you know, circle up to like 40 people out here in the park, just a random park, and we're all studying the book. And it was the coolest deal, you know. Did you get bit by a mosquito? Yeah, I did too. Okay, dude, I got 10 bites, you know what I mean? But we're studying the book and everything's good. We're feeling the power, you know. And so by, you know, by wintertime, it's getting cold. And we needed a place to go, right? And so nobody had an idea. PBG wasn't open at that time. And so some of us had a, uh, a link over at a different church. And so we met with the pastor. We asked the pastor, hey, yeah, he's allowing us to meet there. And we said, what do we need to owe you? Like, what's, what's rent going to be? And he said, are you kidding me? This ain't my house. This is God's house. We're all trying to do the same thing. And we're like, well, I mean, but seriously, you know, we... It's typical that we will pay some money and stuff like that. Well, what can we do? What can we do? And he said, you know what? Just make a difference. And it was like, huh, because we've been fishing for a group name up until that time. Therefore, he coined, make a difference group. That's our group, right? And so we meet one night a week, once, right? Every other night of the week, you're expected to be packing into the stream of life or out somewhere carrying the message, working with other drunks, right? Not doing anything else, not making more meetings, right? out there in the trench carrying the message. Because that's what we do. That's why we study the book, to be better students and practitioners of the program. So um, I know I've only got a few more minutes. And um, one really, really cool thing uh, that has happened is that when my daughter, when I got sober, my daughter was about two years old. She didn't quite really understand what was going on with Daddy, but that she knew that, that Daddy was sick, right? And she also knew that when I got sober that somehow Daddy was better. And she asked me about it. 
there be at nights when I'm reading her stories or something like that and the lights are out, you know what I mean? I'm laying in bed with her, you know, just kind of rocking her to sleep and she'd say, Daddy, can you just tell me the story about how JK got you to God again? And, yeah, it's like heartbreaking, you know, but it, it was cool because I got a chance to talk to her about that, you know? She's two years old and she knew who God was. Daddy, somebody at school told me that God's not real. I told them they were stupid. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so many places I wanted to go to in teaching moments with that, but you know what I mean. So, um, but you know, she she would was always inquisitive when I go out to go carry the message at a treatment center or at another group or something like that, and she would know that when I leave, she'd say, "Daddy, are you going off to help people?" And I say, "Yes, honey, I am." She said, "Are you going to go help people who are sick?" And I said, yes, I absolutely am. She goes, so that you won't get sick again? I said, yeah. Two years old, and I have knuckleheads twice my age who can't even get it. And she's two years old. You know what I mean? She got the secret handshake. Now, granted, there's more to it, but from a two-year-old, come on. You know what I mean? And since then, I've gone through trials and tribulations. You know, I'm human. Things happen. Life continues to happen with or without me in this world, but I've got tools to be able to, to work through those things. We've got a 10th step. Continue to prune the tree since my roots have grasped new soil. We've got an 11th step where I can feed and water it through prayer and meditation so that it can now reach the sunlight of the Spirit. Right? So that hopefully I can transmit what I do have and that's good fruit. Right? And I can pass that along. But if I'm not in the midst of 10, 11, and 12, I'm not doing those as the book is, has designed, then I can transmit what I do have. And if that's sickness, I transmit that too. Right? Page 63, one of my favorite sentences in the book says, being all-powerful, he provided what we needed as long as we stayed close to him and performed his work well. Right? With a conditional if, meaning I have to meet these conditions and I get all that I want. Stay close to God through prayer and meditation and perform his work well through work and self-sacrifice for others. That's chopping wood. That's carrying water. Right? That sentence right there on page 63 alludes to everything that I need to do for the rest of my entire life. And all I have to do is that. Right? That's my job today, no matter what. No matter what he says, no matter what she says, no matter if we're in lockdown, COVID, no COVID, doesn't matter. Anything else is between them and God. My job is to do my job, and because of that, I get all that I need. And if I get all that I need, what else do I need? Pretty simple, right? Um, and so, um, some of these trials and tribulations, and I'm going to wrap it up here pretty soon, that we had gone through is that my wife and I tried to have another baby. And uh, we were very unsuccessful for, um, for, for nine years. We went through... Uh, probably four different miscarriages, tried all sorts of medical procedures and stuff like that, you know, in and out of the hospital and all of these kind of things. And it just wasn't, it wasn't in the cards yet, you know. And it wasn't until we stopped trying and we put our faith and reliance upon God that it just happened naturally. And now I have a little man uh, who's two years old now. He's the coolest little dude, you know. And what's even cooler is that, you know, sometimes if I, if I wake up in the morning, I, the first thing that I do, I have like a little prayer mat sitting up next to my bed. It kind of looks like one of the ones you used to use in Sunday school, you know, like a multicolored prayer mat. And I roll out, my knees hit the, hit the mat. And if he's in bed with us or something like that by some strange magic, 
he rolls out and he hits his knees too. And we sit and we do that together. You know, now is it, you know, disciplined? Is it whatever? No, but the point is, is that I get to share that with him. I get to show him, you know, how to live by spiritual principles. Not only that, I get to demonstrate that to my daughter. I get to show her how a man should really treat a woman. Right? I get to show her that God really exists. Right? I get to show her that in me and through me, in you and through you, that this power of God is real. It is tangible. You can touch it. Why? Because we can touch each other. Each and every single one of you has a voice. I have a voice. We could all be at one treatment center talking about step one or whatever, and guess what? They may only be able to hear it from him. They may only be able to hear it from her. They may not be able to hear it from any of us. It's the person who comes in tomorrow to talk about it, right? But the point is, is that it's my obligation to suit up and show up, right? Get through the steps as rapidly as possible. Have a spiritual experience. Continue to have more spiritual experiences, right? And to give that all away. This is the kind of thing, to see that happen with other people, that's why we say feel the power. There ain't nothing cooler than walking up to the meeting and seeing two dudes on their knees right over here doing a third step prayer and standing up and hugging it out with tears rolling down their eyes. That's feeling the power, right? Seeing a miracle happen in some other dude's life, a dude who, we, you know, people place bets that he would never get sober and now somehow he's out there chopping wood and carrying water. That's feeling the power, right? And that's why we say, feel the power. Say it with me now. Feel the power. Exactly, right? The pep rally for the spirit. So in closing, I will leave you with two things. Because each and every single one of us have a voice, the book says, um, let me thumb to it, I've got to say, page, on page 124 it says, cling to the thought that in God's hands the dark past is the greatest possession that you have. The key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. I do not subscribe to the idea, to the defeatist attitude that I'll always be powerless. Right? If you feel that way, find a new God. Right? Because is this power mine to avert death and misery for other people? No. That's the power of God working in me and through me. Right? We have recovered and been given the power to help others. Right? So long as I keep in fit spiritual condition, so long as I stay connected, and I stay connected to God through staying connected to you. When I'm blocked off from you, guess what? I'm blocked off from God. Right? But when I'm connected to you, I'm feeling the power. And God gets to do his perfect work. Right? And for that, I want to thank each and every single one of you for having me here. I'd like to, uh, again, thank you those, for those who invited me. Thank you for some of my friends who drove distances to, to come and, and meet me. I love you all. Let's circle up and say a prayer. Talk to you soon. Thank you.